All right, why don't you get your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, Colossians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'm really so excited about the series that I'm starting this weekend. And um, it's, it's just a little bit different. And like I said, God really uh, spoke to me concerning this fall and just this word deeper. And, um, and so I called this series New Norm, New Norm. And, and in other words, a new normal. And um, here's, here's kind of the idea behind it. And here's the challenge behind it. Would you like to be challenged today? Uh, would you like to hear truth today and let truth challenge and change you? Right? Or would you just like something warm and fuzzy and go your way? I mean, do you want to take over the world or just be happy? <laughs> I want to be happy and take over the world. That's right. I want both. Good point. And so, uh, touche. And so anyways, I, I want both too. And so I, I want to give you something to challenge you. And so this series is going to challenge me. And it's going to challenge you because it's about a new normal. And let me tell you where I'm coming from on this. When I look at the New Testament church, the book of Acts, the, the epistles, when I look at the New Testament church, the book of Romans, when I look at that and I compare it to modern day American Christianity, they don't look the same. And I'm not trying, I'm not trying to be rude, but, but like in the book of Acts, People were persecuted for the gospel. They were stoned for the gospel and they still showed up at church. Nowadays, if we don't have the coffee just right, people get offended. The free coffee. <laughs> oh my God, y'all had tea last week and I just, without my black tea, I can't go to church anymore. Can't hear Jesus. I'm sorry we're out of black tea. We'll get some. We have it. <laughs> we're not out of it anymore. There you go. Anyways, but, but, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like, man, like in the old in, in the new Testament, the normal, the normal church, like it was a little bit different. Like they didn't have air conditioning and padded seats and right. And, and you compare that with status quo, modern day American Christianity. And it's like, are we really still comparing the same things? And I, I'm concerned in some ways we've so Americanized the gospel to appeal to people that really don't understand the depth of the gospel that it's almost like we're changing the gospel. The gospel is not user friendly. It's user changing. And so for me, you know, I always think what you're called to is that tension between what makes you tick and what ticks you off. And that's kind of the relationship I have with the book of Acts. Like it makes me tick and it ticks me off. Right? Have you ever read it? And you're like, man, that's awesome. Oh my God, what's going on today? You know, it's, it's like, it makes me tick and, and it ticks me off. And I wonder what God could do with a church that was as committed to him in this day Without that church, of course, that church, they were so committed because they could lose their lives for the gospel. And persecution really brings out the depth of your soul. Thank God we're not being persecuted today, but we can still make a decision to be that passionate and in love with Jesus. And we can still make that decision to say, hey, we want to be a normal New Testament church, not a normal American culture church. Are you with me? Like the only reason I would preach this, like I would not preach this in some churches, but I would preach it in ours because I would actually think you guys for the most part would be with me. Now, if you're a guest, I don't know where you're at, but our people, I feel like would be with me on this journey. Like, yeah, you know what? We don't need status quo, Americanized Christianity. We want something real. Yes. 
We want it to be the way it was supposed to be. We want to be passionately pursuing Christ in our lives and letting God work through us and see what God can do through us. And, and that to me is kind of the new norm. And so that's kind of my challenge to you. And so here's what Paul says in Corinthians, uh, Colossians chapter three. It's kind of an interesting phrase, but this is where I started the journey. Colossians chapter three, uh, verse one, it says, since then you have been raised with Christ. So he's saying, Hey, this is just normal Christianity. Normal Christianity. What he's about to say is normal Christianity. He's like, since then you've been raised with Christ. Watch this. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So here he's talking to the Colossians. He's like, hey, since you're believers, here's what normal believers do. They aim their, their affection and they aim their passion at eternity. They aim that at the kingdom of God. They aim their, their passion at heaven they aim it at, this is, this is normal Christianity. They, you know, sin is really just misplaced passion. And he said, so, so they've aimed their passion at the kingdom of heaven, right? And number two, he said, then set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. Set your mind on things above and not. Here's what he's saying. Normal Christianity. Think about this. Normal Christianity. I've aimed my passion and my affection, my emotion, and what drives me. It is aimed not at this world, but the world to come. Normal Christianity, I am thinking more about the kingdom of heaven than I am earth. Right? And so I begin, and this is what he says is normal. And so like I read this and then I had to ask myself, now this week, where has my passion been? This week, where have my thoughts been? Right. Because I read some statistics and I shouldn't do that because it messed me up. And we were on like a, a virtual meeting the other day. Virtual is when they're not in the room, they're in a TV. Um, and so we were doing one of those meetings and someone quoted a statistic and I'd heard it before. Um, but but it was that the average church attender, the average church attender attends church one to two times a month. And, and listen, there's no condemnation. Like if you work or you travel, I totally get that. So I, I work, you know, about 48 weekends a year. So totally get that. That's not where I'm coming from. It's not, but I just thought like, I remember when the average church attendance was three times per week. How many can talk to me about that? You were raised in one of those churches. See, some of you, you don't know what we're talking about because for us, we had Sunday morning church. Then we went to Sunday night church. It wasn't like what we do here where we do three services that are all the same thing. No, no, no. These were all different services. You went to Sunday morning church. You went to Sunday night church. You went to Wednesday night church, right? You went to, to Tuesday night prayer meeting. You went to Saturday soul winning, right? And by God, if someone was going to clean the church on a Friday, you showed up and sang just as I am in your pew. right? Like I remember when it was that way. And now I'm like, man, I have our church in one to two times a month. Wow. That's, that's crazy. And, and then I read the Barna, Barna group did a study that, that five to 7% of the church of believers tithe something Jesus told us we should do something that the Hebrews seven tells us testifies that Jesus is alive. Like it's our highest form of worship is to give Jesus not only all of us, but all of our finances. And we do that by giving the first 10% and five to 7% of the church actually does that. And I thought, man, where's our affection at? And then I read this, that, that 19% of believers read their Bible every day and 26% of believers read their Bible a few times a week. None of that's supposed to be condescending. That's just kind of like, okay, here's where America is. And then I'm thinking, but, but, but this is supposed to be normal over here. 
And for me, I want to be normal. I've never gotten to be normal in my life. But here's an opportunity. <laughs> right? I'm like, man, I, I want to be normal. Like, I want to, I want to move towards the, the cause of Christ. And so I got to thinking about this. Um, I had the opportunity this last week um, to speak at a, a Christian high school. Uh, they have a retreat every year, and I got to speak there a couple years ago, and they asked me to come back, which I don't know what that says about them. But anyways, they asked me to come back, and, and uh, I asked this question, and I love speaking to teenagers, a lot of fun. And um, I just had, they gave me a, a cordless mic that you could hold, so I just moved around through them while I was talking. If I did this here, some of you would never come back. It would make you so nervous, but um, they couldn't escape because they couldn't, some of them couldn't drive, and the rest of them didn't have their cars with them. So anyways... Uh, they couldn't get out of there. And so, but I went around and I asked them this question. I said, hey, um, what would you, if I said an enemy of the cross to you, who would that be or what would that be? What would that look like? An enemy of the cross of Jesus. And so I went to the, the, to the first little girl, teenage girl. I said, enemy of the cross, what comes to your mind? She said, Satan. I'm like, man, no lie. Enemy of the cross should be the easiest answer, but you nailed it. Number one, like survey says, it's number one on the survey. Satan is an enemy of the cross. Went to this uh, young man. I said, hey, enemy of the cross, who comes to mind? He said, Hitler. I'm like, man, absolutely. He was murdering Jews. I mean, this is an enemy of the cause of Christ and the cross of Christ. I went to this next little uh, girl. I said, hey, you know, enemy of the cross, what comes to mind? She said, Hillary Clinton. And I said, (laughs) (laughs) And, and don't get mad at me. I didn't say it. I'm just telling you a story. It's all I'm doing is telling you a story. Don't send me that email. So I just said, out of the mouth of babes. And then I went on. And I'm sorry, I did not say that. That was just too funny to pass up. Anyways, and so I went on. And so maybe, like, maybe you could think, like, cause of Christ. Could that be ISIS or an atheist? But you know what's interesting that I told them that I want to tell you? Is that Paul in the New Testament actually defines an enemy of the cross. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. And you know who he says an enemy of the cross is? Someone who thinks more about the earth than the kingdom of God. Someone who their mind is set more on earth than eternity. Someone who their affection is set more on earth than the kingdom of heaven. And so I brought a, I don't always do this, but I have a visual aid. Do you like visual aids? Can you handle this? I don't know if you can handle this or not. This is a rope. No, we're not hanging anyone or anything like that. But this is, you know what this is? It's a rope, but actually, actually what this is, is this is a timeline of your existence. Um, And we're going to pretend, can you use your imagination? Can you do that in church still? All right, so uh, imagination we're going to attend that this, pretend that this rope goes on forever. Like it doesn't just go back here, but it just goes around, 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 around the world. In other words, it is infinite. It is eternal, right? Because this rope is actually the timeline of your life or the timeline we should say of your existence. And here's the thing. If you're in this room, it doesn't matter whether you believe in God or don't believe in God. You're all eternal beings. You're eternal spirits and you're having a temporary physical experience, but your existence is going to go on forever and ever and ever. All right. So all of us now, this is the timeline of our existence, right? Are you with me so far? All right. Now this, this little section right here, this little three inch red section, this is your time on earth. This is your time somewhere else. Are you with me? 
So here's what Paul says, an enemy of the cross. An enemy of the cross is someone that spends more time thinking about this little three-inch red section than they do all this other white section. They spend more time focused on what's going to, oh my God, did she like my Instagram post or not? I'm going to be mad for a week. I'm not going to church ever again. The pastor didn't like my post. What, what, what kind of car am I going to drive or house am I going to live in? Or how about this? If I work really hard for these two inches, then this last little inch, I can really enjoy my life. I can get an RV and go live in state parks. <laughs> right? And there's nothing wrong with RVs or state parks. My, my youngest son, his goal in life is to have an RV. We don't know why. That's just always been his goal in life. But. We're having a conversation. He's trying, his, his older brother's going to be 16 next year, and so he's trying to convince Luke, you should get an RV. <laughs> Luke's like, what is he talking about? And Luke's like, you should get an RV. He's like, I would love to have an RV. It's the weirdest thing. Anyway, so, um, <laughs> but you know, here's the thing. Like, like the other day, I, I was at a stoplight, and um, I love trucks. Does anybody, how many are truck people? Jesus would drive one. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> If, if, if the gospel, if Jesus was on the earth today, he would not ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. It would be in a four-wheel drive. <laughs> right? That's all. Okay. Anyways, um, I love trucks. And so I was sitting at this red light the other day, and uh, this truck pulled up next to me. And I don't know why, but those, I don't have one. I actually have a GM. But um, those, those new Toyota Tundras, um, they just, they give me the warm fuzzies. I feel the Holy Spirit. <laughs> when they come around, I feel his presence. And so I was just sitting at the, the, the red light, minding my own business, and all of a sudden I was like, oh, and I was like, there it is. You know, and here's, here's the thing. I'll, I'll be honest, my truck's paid for, but I'll be honest um, with you. I mean, I could actually go and buy one of those. I, I make enough money to buy one of those, um, but I would have to give less. Just like we're selling our house and we're trying to downsize one more time. We've already downsized once. We're trying to downsize a little bit more. And people are like, man, you're dumb. If you can afford a big house, man, if you can afford a new truck, you should, you should get that new truck. You should live in that new house. You should have the nicest stuff that you can be in debt to have. Like, you're dumb for not doing that. I'm like, no, you're dumb. You're dumb because all of this white stuff is a lot more than all of that red stuff. You're dumb because, yeah, that truck, man, it might last 10 whole years. But the money I gave last year may have reached 4 million people. So Paul says, here's, here's an enemy of the cross. We, we set our heart and our affections and our mind on this little bitty red section. And we've kind of forgotten the end game. What really matters. And so let me give you three things to think about. Let me read you a quote from C.S. Lewis. Anybody know who C.S. Lewis is? Um, this was Mere Christianity. He wrote this, the book Mere Christianity. It's a great book, by the way. If you, if you want something to mess you up, you could read that. <laughs> but he says, if you read history, listen to this. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did most, listen to this, who did the most for this present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next then he goes on. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, 
that they have become so ineffective in this one. See, when he, that's the problem, I think, in America nowadays. We have this 70-year mindset. And, and normal New Testament believers had an eternal mindset. Right? Paul was always talking about that day, judgment day. When we stand before Jesus, we're going to talk about that. But here's three things. Let me tell you this. Number one, what you do today determines where you spend eternity. <clears throat> right? Number one, what you do today. That's why Paul said to the Corinthian church, hey, now is the time of salvation Today is the day of God's favor. In other words, he's saying God has favored you so much, he has given you this time right now to choose him. That's how much God loves you. And he used now and today, not tomorrow or next week. And the reason is because tomorrow is a word on a fool's calendar. You are not promised tomorrow. And some people think, well, I'm going to kind of do my thing now. And then someday I get married, someday I have kids, and then we'll find a church and I'll try to live for God. I'll get in a life group then. I did a funeral two months ago for a 15-year-old. Tomorrow's a word on a fool's calendar. That's why Paul said, now, today, because it's who you believe in that determines where you spend eternity. That's why I love when Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I like that better than in. And the reason is because it's completely possible to believe in Jesus and not actually follow him. Jesus said it this way, you believe in one God, so does every demon in hell, and they tremble. I'm not not saved because I believe there is a God. I'm saved because I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for his forgiveness and righteousness and cleansing and to make me a new creation. I believed on him for salvation. And so here's the great thing is that I have today, I have this time today, and what I, what I believe today determines where I spend that entire eternity. Ephesians 2, verse 8. Ephesians 2, verse 8 says, um, that's, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's what you need to know, that salvation, salvation comes from God. And I'm not saved because of what I do. I save, I'm saved simply because of who I believe on, who I believe in. And you need to know this. It's, you need to be clear that salvation is not something I earn. It's something that I receive from him. And now is the day that I can receive that grace. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's a gift. You see that? It's a gift. Not by works so no one can boast. I love grace. I love the message of grace because it says, I'm not saved by my performance. I'm saved by Christ's performance when I believe his performance was enough to save me. I'm not saved by what I do. I'm saved by what he did and who I believe in, who I trust in for his salvation who I trust in for deliverance, right? And that's, a, that's good news, isn't it? It's just who I believe in. I don't have to do anything to be saved. I have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. But here's the thing. If I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, it should actually start changing my value system and my priorities so that I become like Paul and my affections are set in eternity and my mind is set in eternity. That, that really my heart and my mind is anchored, become anchored in eternity and not in this present world. And so I tell people all the time, and I'll tell you just the same. If you said, oh, I believe in Jesus Christ, but nothing about your life changed except you come to church every now and then, you might want to check that. Like, you know, I, we used to have this uh, phrase uh, called fire insurance. 
in, when it pertains to believers, like I've got my fire insurance. In other words, I prayed that prayer because I don't want to burn in hell. Like someone presented an option. I mean, it's really not rocket science. If someone said, would you like to burn in hell or live in heaven? <laughs> it's a trick question. <laughs> I'd choose heaven. All right, pray this prayer. Why well, pray that prayer? There is no sinner's prayer in the New Testament. There's a believer's baptism. There's a commitment. But the whole idea that I just pray some prayer and get some fire insurance. Listen, I have an insurance agent and I have fire insurance on everything that I own. I don't follow him. I like him, but his my relationship with him, I mean, it's kind of casual. I talk to him a few times a year at best. It hasn't changed my life to be in relationship with him. I mean, nothing against him. He's a great guy, but hasn't changed my value system or my priority system. I think sometimes when we're just trying to be close enough to Jesus to miss hell, I don't know that we really have a relationship with him at all. Are you still breathing? And so Paul says you have this time because when we stand in eternity, Matthew 25 says he's going to separate what the, what the Bible says, the sheep from the goats. The sheep would be the believers. The goats would be the unbelievers. And on that day, we, we, the decision's already been determined. In other words, who I believe now determines what happens then. So what I do today determines where I spend eternity. Here's the second thing. What I do today determines how I spend eternity. I think this is the message that was on my heart to bring to you because church, we don't talk about this a lot. We're too busy telling people, God loves you and you're good enough and you're smart enough and Jesus is victory and everything's just going to be okay. You know, that gospel doesn't work across the pond where people today will lose their heads because they believe in Jesus Christ. Or the little Chinese pastor that can't even have a Bible or be thrown in jail, but he's got one page of a New Testament and he's a pastor of a house church that if they found out, they'd throw him in prison and he's preaching that one little page of his Bible because it's all he has. The whole good enough, smart enough, gosh darn it, people like me. That's not a good message over there. That's the American gospel. Right? See, the truth is, what I do today determines how I spend eternity because here's what the Bible says, that my loving Savior Jesus, who is a loving Savior and full of grace and full of truth, when I stand in eternity, he will actually become a judge. And that will not be to condemn believers, that there will be, and we'll, I'll show you both of these, there'll be a judgment for unbelievers and there'll be a judgment for believers. And the judgment for believers is not a condemning, it's just decisions. In other words, he will look at what I did with my time on this earth and make a decision on how I'm going to spend eternity. Yes, it will technically be in heaven, but he will determine how. The quality of that existence in heaven, he will determine based on what I did in that three inches of red section here. Let me show you this in scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.8. For we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. So we're talking to believers about believers because believers who are absent in the body are present with the Lord. Unbelievers who are absent with the body are not present with the Lord. We call that hell. That's not a statement of judgment. That's a statement of fact. If you don't believe in Jesus, there are only two options. Right? And people, well, how can a loving God send people to hell? He's never sent anyone to hell. He just honored their choice to live without him. In fact, he's been trying. Like, if you go to hell, you kind of have to work at it. Because you've got to step over everybody that's ever prayed for you, everybody that's invited you to church, every message you've ever heard, every TV program, every radio program, every scripture, every praying grandma. 
You've got to step over the blood of Jesus, the New Testament, and the Holy Spirit. You've got to step over all of that to get to hell. You kind of have to work hard because he keeps throwing these roadblocks and lifelines in your path. So if you get to hell, you earned it. Is this okay? This is kind of one of those big boy, big girl panty talks. Right? So be present, you know, be present with the Lord. Therefore, watch this. We make it our aim. A while ago, a moment ago, Paul was aiming his mind and aiming his heart. Now he's aiming his, aiming his life. We make it our aim, whether present or absent. Watch this, to be well-pleasing to him. Time out. I think we all know that nothing we can do changes God's love for us. Are you convinced of that? That you can't do anything to make God love you more and you can't do anything to make God love you less. God's love for you is constant and fixed, right? But you are in charge with how well-pleased he is with you. You can't do any. Listen, God loves you as much as Jesus and he loves Hitler as much as you. His love is constant. But I am in charge with how well pleasing I am to him. And Paul's saying, since there's going to be a day when we stand before Jesus, I want to be well pleasing to him. And so he says, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing him, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Here's, see, there's the great white throne judgment. I'll read that in a moment. The great white throne judgment is, is for unbelievers to stand before God and give an account of their life. But the believer's judgment, the great, the judgment seat of Christ is for believers to stand before Jesus and give an account of our life. And that's what Paul's talking about. We, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us, every one of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Do you see that? That's in your Bible, not in just mine. We didn't put a, a, a tricky version up there. It's in your Bible too. And here's what he's saying, that for believers, we will, we will be judged. In other words, decisions will be made about us by Jesus. We will be judged, not, not for whether we receive Christ. We will not be judged for sin. He has already made a judgment on sin and God placed all of our sin on Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of Christ. We will not be judged for sin. We will not be condemned for sin. Jesus was condemned for our sin. Jesus was judged for our sin and Jesus was executed for our sin. And so we will not be judged for sin. We are now under grace if we have received Christ. However, we will be judged for everything we did after we received that grace. And that's what he's saying. See, what you do with the cross determines where you spend eternity. But what you do after the cross determines how you spend eternity. And he said that we'll give an account for everything we do, whether good or bad. In other words, my belief determines where I spend eternity. But my behavior actually determines how I spend eternity. Well, I didn't think it mattered. I just thought if we prayed the prayer, we all went to heaven and became fat, plump baby angels and sat on clouds in little togas with little harps. This is why I'm preaching this message to help you with truth. That the Bible said we're going to rule and reign with him, not float on a cloud and sing to him. Rule and reign. Rule and reign. In other words, in one place he said, well done, faithful servant. Enter in and, and, and now rule over 10 cities. That's in heaven. You want to rule and reign? Oh, let me, let me ask you a question. If I were to tell you that how you live the next 24 hours would determine 
how you were going to live the next million years. In other words, what you did the next 24 hours would determine how you're going to live the next million years. How would you live the next 24 hours? Like you may have terrible neighbors now, but you're like, well, I have terrible neighbors for 24 hours. But if, if I am faithful, right, and if I'm intentional and if I'm purposeful and I make every moment of this 24 hours count, then I'm going to have good neighbors living on the lake for the next million years, right? Essentially, that's what I'm telling you. How you live for however many days you have left and you don't really know how many. So the idea that I'm really going to get busy on the tail end of this might not be the greatest philosophy. I'm telling you, how you live the rest of your life will determine how you spend eternity. And in fact, let me read you another scripture. 1 Corinthians 3, if you're there, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, it says, For no other foundation can anyone lay that has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. In other words, now we're talking about building on the cross. We're talking about after the cross. There's a foundation of Jesus, and now we're going to build on it. So this is after the cross. This is believers. He's talking to believers. Verse 12, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, or silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. Watch this. Each one's work will become clear for the day. We're talking about the believer's judgment. Paul talked a lot about this, actually. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work. See, we're not saved by works, but we are saved for work. So each one's works, it will test each one's works of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. Do you see that? He'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved as one escaping through the flames. Here's what Paul is saying. Everything you do on this earth, in that little red section, everything you do in that little red section, when you get to the white section, that's infinity, actually will either be an eternal reward or an eternal regret. what he's actually saying, right? That the day is going to, it's, it's your, the day is going to reveal what you actually did after the cross. The day that, that judgment day you stand before Jesus, we're going to actually see what was done after the cross. And that will either net you an eternal reward or an eternal regret. In other words, he's saying there are things that you do on this earth that are going to matter through all eternity. And there are things you're going to do on this earth that are not going to matter for all eternity. You have this, this time, if you will, that what you do the next 50 or 60 years is actually going to determine how you spend eternity. And the reason I'm sharing this message is because I don't ever hear this message anymore. And the reason I'm sharing this message is because when I stand before God, then I have to give an account for everything I said from this platform. And while... It might get me more Twitter followers if I say you're good enough and you're smart enough and everything's going to be okay. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when we go to the church. That would be nice, but there is truth. And the truth is, even for believers, we're going to stand before Jesus and how we spent our time on this earth really is going to impact how we spend our time in all of eternity. And that's... That's the reality because here's the thing. Jesus actually becomes a judge and Jesus actually is going to judge your life based on, listen to this, based on his plan for you. Can I show you something? Um, look at, we, we read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Now look at Ephesians 10. Ephesians 2, 8 was by, by grace you're saved. 
You know, it's a gift. You don't earn it. But watch what he goes on to say this after this. For we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. What are we created for? Good works. Right? You're not, you're not saved by works, but you're, you're saved for works. Which God prepared, do you see this word? Beforehand. God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, so get a picture, if you will. So God looks at this and he's like, I'm going to prepare some things that need to be done. Like I need the gospel preached here and I need this taken care of and I need this done and this done. And I'm going to, okay, here's some good things. And after he gets to the end of preparing all the good things, then he goes back to the beginning. Isaiah 46, he knows the end from the beginning. He goes back to the beginning and says, there are those good works that I've prepared for beforehand that Marty should walk in them. And then he creates me for a story he's already written. God always starts at the end game and comes back, right? Let me show you another scripture. Uh, Psalm 139, verse 16, it says, you saw me before I was born. That is good vision. You saw me before I was born. Watch this. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out when? Before a single day had passed. You saw me. Every day was laid out, every moment accounted for when? Before a moment actually passed. This is how God works. God writes the story, then goes back to the beginning and chooses a person to live that story, right? Same thing with Jesus, by the way. One day in eternity, God's sitting here and he's like, Jesus, you know, I've written a story. What's the story? Well, the story is I'm going to create a planet and I'm going to put people in it and they're going to screw up. And the only way to save them is I'm going to have to send you in their flesh and you're going to have to die and then I'm going to resurrect you. And through that, they can come to faith in me and they can be saved from the, the penalty for their sin. Are you willing to go to that planet? And it's not created yet, but are you willing to go to that planet when it's time and die for them? And Jesus says, yes. And, and God says, great. Then you, Revelation 13, are the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He'd already written the story, Right? That's the only way Jesus could be slain before the world was created. Right? When, when Daniel, in the book of Daniel, when he has a, a vision about the judgment, it says, and the books were open. What were the books? It was the books of the stories of our lives. Like, you don't have to be famous to have an autobiography. Each of you have an autobiography that God wrote and published in heaven. Right? Are you with me? But here's, here's the truth of it, though, Ecclesiastes 3.15. It says, that which is has already been. Now, that's pretty easy to figure out. Like, what is has already been. That's, that kind of makes sense, right? Yesterday has already been. But watch this next phrase. And what is to be has already been. Now, how is that possible? Oh, God already wrote the story. He knows the end from the beginning. Or the beginning from the end. Right? Really knows the end from the beginning because he wrote the end first and then started the story. And what is to be has already been. Now watch this. And God requires an account. That's judgment of what is past. Here's what I'm telling you. On judgment day, you're not going to stand next to me and say, well, I gave more money than him. You're not going to stand against your neighbor and say, well, I went to more church services. Well, I led a life group. Because you're not going to be judged based on what you did. You're going to be judged based on what he destined you to do. 
you're going to be judged against the story he had written and then created you for. So it's going to look like that. This, you know, here I am, I stand in eternity, and God says, Hey, where's John? I don't know. I don't know a John. Oh, you know, right here in your story. I'm reading right here. See, part of your story was to influence John to accept Christ. You were supposed to bring John to Christ. And then John was going to become a missionary and go to Kenya. And John was going to reach over 200,000 souls. Where's John? Well, I don't know. Well, he was, you were supposed to work with him at this place. Oh, I left that place because this other place offered me more money. Oh, then you never talked to John about me. So John didn't become a missionary. So what happened to those 200,000 Kenyans? Then calls another person forward. He says, hey, how did that accounting software work out? Well, what do you mean accounting software? I'm a pastor. You're a pastor. Well, that's good. But your story was you were supposed to be a CPA and you were going to invent an accounting software that was going to save churches and ministries tons of time and money. And so they could steward more resources and give to the kingdom and send more missionaries. And you became a pastor. Yeah, that's good. But, but what about all the souls that were attached to the money that you were going to save the ministries by being a CPA? Or how about the little single mom who stands before Jesus and cries because she says, I wanted to be a missionary with all my heart, but you know, life happened and husband left and I had these four kids and I did everything I could to raise them in church where they would know you, but I never actually made it to the mission field. And God reads the story and says, you weren't supposed to go to the mission field. You were supposed to raise four missionaries and you did. And your four children now have with them, in your account also, 2.3 million souls. I only caused you to raise four missionaries, not to be a missionary. When we stand before Jesus, we're not going to be judged necessarily for what we did or didn't do. We're going to be judged for the story that he wrote for us and how well we lived it. And that day really is going to happen. And that day, you know what? In that day, it won't matter what kind of car we drove or the vacations that we went on. And I love vacations. And it won't matter. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you get an income tax return and it's $2,500. Hey, that could be a nice gun. And Jesus loves guns. I don't have a scripture and verse yet, but I'm going to find one. And that, that gun would be cool in your gun safe. It'd be cool in my gun safe. I know it would. <laughs> but while that $2,500 may be cool in my gun safe, if God wanted me to give it somewhere else, how cool could that be in eternity? When God says, lay up for yourselves. Have you ever thought about that? God said, I can actually lay up for myself treasure in heaven. So what I like to lay up for myself. See, we think it's lay up treasure for God. But it actually says, Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. 
Apparently, we're going to need treasure in heaven. And he's saying, I can actually do something with my resources in this little amount of time that actually lays up for me treasure for all eternity. And so that's why we have a value that we are stewards because everything that comes into our hands actually belongs to God and we want to steward it appropriately. And if God says, go to Hawaii, I say Honolulu and take a picture and bring me back one of those pineapples. (laughs) But if God says, give that, then you better lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. Right? Where it makes sense. So what I do now determines where I spend eternity. What I do now determines how I spend eternity. And to me, this is the shortest point, but the most awesome. What I do now determines who spends eternity with me. Revelation verse 20. This is reality, by the way. Revelation chapter 20. Verse 11, it says, and I saw a great white throne. This is the judgment for unbelievers to stand before God. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. Now watch this. And the earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I love Revelation, not because I'm trying to figure out if the locusts or helicopters or whatever kind of crazy theory or the moon is this or the sun's supposed to do that or there's some crazy stuff out there. People write about the book of Revelation. I don't understand it, but I love the imagery. That's cool. It has nothing to do with the sermon, but look, that is a cool verse. Anyways, verse 12, I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were open, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the book of life. And the sea gave up its dead, and the dead, the death and the grave, death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Unbelievers will be judged according to their deeds too. Believe it or not, there are actually layers of hell and layers of heaven. There are levels. So whether you go to hell or heaven, no one gets the same reward. You're all rewarded based on what you did. Verse 14, then then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown in the lake of fire. Here's what he's saying. Do you know how their name, do you know their name, if their name's not recorded in that book, they're thrown in the book of fire, the, the lake of fire? Do you know who influences whose names are in that book and not? We do. God's done his part. He sent Jesus. He wrote us a New Testament. And now, according to Matthew 25, Jesus says it's now what we do that determines who, has, who lives in eternal life and righteousness and who lives in eternal death and suffering. It's now up to us. And he said it like this. If you clothe the naked and you, you feed the poor and you invite people into your home, what he's saying, it's just simple things that we do in everyday life, but we do them with an eternal perspective. I don't invite them in my home just to hang out. I invite them in my home and then I share the gospel with them. I don't just feed them, but I feed them and I share the gospel with them. I don't just clothe them. I clothe them and I share the gospel with them. I don't just give them a glass of water, but I give them a glass of water and I share the gospel with them because what I'm doing actually matters. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. This, this message is not about eternal judgment. This message is actually about eternal significance. And what I'm trying to get you to understand, regardless of what culture has taught you, is that your life doesn't end at your funeral. That's where your eternity begins. And your life matters eternally. It matters to you eternally, but it matters to others eternally. Your life has eternal significance attached to it. Your life matters forever. Your life matters forever. Your life matters forever. It will be significant.
for all eternity. Not only for you, but for everybody you bring with you, for everyone you influence and you speak to about Jesus and the cross and the gospel. See, when I say found people, find people, it's cute and it's catchy. But to me, it's like every person we find, it means their name's in the book, which means they don't end up in the lake of fire. Are you with me? That's why we go find them, because it actually matters. It actually matters, not just for us and not just for today, but for eternity. I think it's one of those messages that it's kind of a big girl, big boy message. Probably not a lot of warm fuzzies, but I just want, I almost want to grab people and say, don't you understand how much your life actually matters? Like what you're going to do tomorrow is going to matter for eternity, or it's not. But it's supposed to. Do you see that? Do you see it? It matters. Why don't you stand with me? You know, the question really becomes now, what what are you going to do this week that's going to matter eternally? Because that's the question I would ask me. Because that's the opportunity that I have. And I can do things this week that won't matter eternally. It doesn't even mean they're bad things. It doesn't even mean you're a bad person. But I could be intentional this week about doing things that I know will matter eternally. And that's living with my mind fixed on the world to come and my affection fixed on the world to come. Why don't you bow your heads with me and